this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey there, it's John Warlow. Listen, if you're brand new to Built to Sell Radio, welcome. It's good to have you along for the ride. We've been doing this show now for five years. I've interviewed literally a different entrepreneur every week for the past five years, and I've taken some of their best practices, their their tips and tricks and negotiation hacks, and distilled them all into a field guide. It's a book called The Art of Selling your business. And it is a little bit of a recipe card for you to punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating with an acquirer. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. You know, I think there's a superpower among entrepreneurs that is more important than where you went to school, who your parents are. It's the willingness to be curious to just be interested in virtually anybody or anything. Because the best entrepreneurs are usually borrowing ideas that work in one industry and bring them to a new industry. And my next guest, David Perry, is a perfect example of that. He grew up, got a high school education in Belfast, and decided to leave for the United States, ultimately built a company in the video game industry, which he sold to Sony for a cool $380 million. Not an Ivy League graduate, not a fancy business school to his credit, only his curiosity and business savvy that brought him to that level of success. It's an amazing story, and there are some specific things I want you to listen for. In particular, how he built his product without diluting his equity. He'll describe that to you. He'll talk about how naming your company and your products can create almost a tribal-like degree of loyalty, and that's important, obviously, when you've got limited budgets to grow your company. He'll talk about how he pinpointed his natural acquirers, actually built a dartboard and put the names of his natural acquirers early, which gave him a sort of northern star as he built his business. He talked about how to protect your working relationship with your acquirer while also not undermining your negotiating leverage, a key strategy along that point. He talks about this concept of helping investors see a gold vein and how that can help you raise money for your idea. I loved what David referred to as down-the-track thinking, and I think it can be a a great way for you to contemplate your role as the founder and entrepreneur inside your company. Here to tell you the entire story is David Perry. David Perry, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks for introducing me, and thanks for inviting me. So I can't wait to tell my kids I had this interview because both of them like video games, but I don't know anything about video games. So they're going to be like, you talk to who? Uh, so tell me about Gaikai because I think it's, it's, uh, it's a company I don't know much about, but I know you will explain it to me and the listeners. Well, I'm originally from the video game industry from, from when I was young. It was really the first thing I ever did. I didn't realize you could be paid to make video games. <laughs> Um, and, and I started making them, and I sort of learned that that if I if I made branded games, 
that they would become hits. So the first one I did was um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and that that put me number one in the charts. And so, in, you know, in the video game industry, if you're if you're number one in anything, they just like the music industry, they want to work with you. And so I found myself in my career every time I tried to make something just for fun, it would you know no one would ever hear about it really. Um, but when I made something branded, it would cause this huge spike in my career. And so I ended up moving to America to make um, a game for McDonald's. And that game ended up winning Game of the Year. So I stayed in America and we did one for 7up. And then we did Disney's Aladdin and um, Disney's Aladdin ended up being a big hit. And so I've had lots of different games, but we, we ended up um, sort of developing, always licensing in but then we realized what would happen if we licensed out and we made a property called Earthworm Gym. And um, some of Say some that of, again, Earthworm Gym. Earthworm Gym. And okay. uh, Earth, Earthworm Gym, some of your users will, uh, or some of your, your, your um, listeners will actually um, know that one because it's a bit of a cult hit. Um, and so what happens is with Earthworm Gym, it, it became a TV show, a toy line you know, lunch boxes, you name it, all the possible licensing categories. And so we learned about that as well. But so my career has always been making games. But then at one point, I sort of realized that, that the future, I think, is going to be easier and easier and easier. It's kind of an entrepreneurial thing. How can you make things easier? And so the question was, if everything is streaming, all the movies and music and even books now, um, wouldn't you like to have every video, video game ever made? everywhere you go instantly like wouldn't that be cool and will that ever happen and so we thought well why don't we start trying to make that happen and we started building the technology to do that and the concept was that that means that the video games would play from the cloud because you don't want to have a, a hard drive somewhere with every video game ever on it how about we, we do it in the cloud and we can stream to any device and we built the technology and companies started really liking it, Samsung decided to build it into their televisions. Walmart built it into walmart.com so you could actually play games on their website. Facebook um, allowed us to, to build it into Facebook. And so the net result was that we had this technology that, you know, you click a button and a game appears. And it turns out you could do it with any software. So we, we actually started doing demonstrations of Photoshop on Adobe.com, for example, you could just click a button and you're using the real Photoshop, but you didn't have to download and install it. And so long story short, that became something that Sony was very interested in because the question is, will you always have to buy video game consoles? Someday in the future, you won't. I, I don't believe you will. You'll be able um, to access them from any piece of glass that you Yeah, we find the same hardware with slightly improved year after, or, or not, it's not every year, but over time is not the most efficient way to, to distribute the games and get a lot of people playing them. Um, so this seemed like an interesting idea. So Sony bought the company and, um, and then we ended up, they've built it into the PlayStation. It's called PlayStation now, and there's millions of people paying um, every month to play and use that technology. So it worked out. I love well. it. So I want to go back. So you used to be like the creator of games the publisher almost of a game like the even, even if we go back as far as teenage mutant ninja turtle uh you created that from inspired by the movie i'm assuming 
Yeah, so the the property is it was created by the original uh, creators, but they end up licensing out the the property through a licensing company, and um, and basically I was working with a company in England that had had managed to get control of those rights, and they said, you know, would you be willing to make this game? And are you and, by uh, training like an artist, like a freehand drawer or a programmer? Like, what is your technical skill set? So uh, it's gonna it's gonna age me, but I started out as just a programmer um, when games were black and white with, and the sound were just beeps. So like I didn't Tetris. need I didn't need uh, well even Tetris was color um, even oh, before that. So, um, but when, when it's just beeps, you don't need a musician, and when the graphics are really blocky, you don't need an artist. So I was a one man team for a long time, but then. When, I, when art started to become important and the game started to look good, I had to get an artist and, and I had a, a friend of mine, um, his name's Nick Broody, and Nick and I became a two-man team and, uh, and together that, you know, we had quite a few uh, successes um, as we went along, including the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, Music-wise, as the music got better, we, never, we didn't actually ever um, have a third person for music, we always just, um, outsource that so we, we would license that out and get to get some musician to do it so our musician would change from game to game um, but uh, it was it was such a fun time and the industry is so vast now <laughs> it's just, yeah it, it's 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 incredible so you you grew up like publishing games licensing you know uh, IP from others and making a game out of it as well as working with brands like McDonald's and seven up what point did you start Gaikai? Was that the 2008 sort of pivot to licensing yeah. this technology? Well, th there's an interesting thing, which is um, some entrepreneurs tend to think about their own country as being the center of the universe, and it's normal. It's the absolute normal way to do it. Um, I was uh, I had a friend at the time who was looking at the Chinese and South Korean game industries. And it turns out that most Western companies weren't paying any attention at all to how everything was sort of exploding in China and South Korea. And the government agencies there were actually really interested in getting Western companies to come and visit. And so, you know, they would literally fly us out and set up all the meetings with all the CEOs of all the companies. How killer wow. is that, right? So you just literally walked into meetings with the CEO of each Chinese company. Um, and the result of that is that you're, they were kind of like, you know, you're the first Westerners to ever come and visit us. This is so amazing. Um, and our goal was to learn what on earth is going on down here? How are these games so successful? What are you doing differently than we're doing in the West? And the thing that, that was really big at the time was free to play. This idea that you would play for free, um, but then you could pay to unlock features or add features um, to the game. And they would end up, you know, they'd have a million concurrent users. So a million people playing simultaneously on, on some of these games. And it was just such an incredible thing. And so I, in my speeches in, in the US, I'd be saying, you know, I know you don't feel there's any threat from China at all. Um, like, you know, you're just making your games and, you know, they're doing whatever they're doing. But if they ever get it right and make a game that, that, that hits the, the Western market, it's going to be huge here. And so... You've got to watch out for that. And free-to-play has, of course, that has happened. The free-to-play business has come over and absolutely killed it in the West as well. 
Um, there's games like Clash Royale and things like that that are, that are just so successful. Um, you know, as a mobile game, they make billions of dollars from it. Um, you know, it's it sounds absurd to think that there's people putting thousands of dollars into a single mobile game, but they do. And um, and and why does this work? Well, what they did, you know, if you, if you want to think about this from a business strategy, what the big difference was that in the West, we always thought that you would pay a certain amount of money for a video game. It's going to be $39 and then it became $49 and then it became $59. And what we're actually doing is raising the money wall. And we were saying that you have to climb over this wall if you want to play our video game. And the people who can't afford to, well, you can't play our game. Um, and, and it's a terrible idea. And so the concept with free to play was no, not everybody can, can play. And in a way, the people that can't afford to pay any money actually are, 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 are there to play with the other people who can afford to, play, to, to pay the money. So everyone is able to play together. Um, and it's better to have more people. And, and uh, the, whole, the whole thing, ecosystem becomes much more alive. The community is much more vibrant. And, um, and so there's a network effect with video games as well, right? When more of your friends are playing, the more you want to be. Yeah. So, so the point is that, that you know, embrace what else is going on in the world. There's other stuff that, that, that we're not aware of here. I'm sure you've maybe seen it when you've been traveling, you've tasted some food that's amazing and you're thinking, why don't they sell this in the US? Um, sure. it's, it's, it's like that in every dimension. There's things that, that we just haven't got here yet that, that, that someone else has learned somewhere else and, and you can be the one to bring that to the, to the West. Um, makes, a ton, makes a ton of sense. I want to get tactical because I still, I still have a, a, a bit of confusion around your journey. So I get the publishing of games. I get working with brands like McDonald's and 7up and Disney to like create games for them. Where I get a bit fuzzy is what happens next. So at some point you move from uh, licensing other people's IP to almost like a technology platform. And I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of in time, is that sort of around 2008 when Gaikai starts as a separate company or just give me uh, help it, it, was, me there. it was a little earlier than that. Um, but, but in general, the, Hmm. It, it was it was an interesting time because I was trying to learn as much as I could about, um, you know, where's the industry going? I have this company with a bunch of people, a payroll. I'm having how many meet, employees did you have at that time? Ball, ballpark, probably around ten to twelve people, somewhere around there. And and, and what happened? And what's the business model at that at that stage? Ten so employees, like we were making the games, we'd publish them, and we'd earn um, royalties on each game sold, and. Got um, it. And that was working well um, for us. But what happened was the industry, um, we, were, we were experts in, in two-dimensional video games. So actually, you know, when we made Aladdin, it, it was, if you think about it, it's all cell animation, the way Disney does their, their, their hand-painted animation. So in the industry, we were, we were considered experts at hand-drawn animation. And the whole industry was going three-dimensional. And so I kind of went, oh, I don't know if this is, if our team is going to want to make this transition and the, you know, talking to them about it, they were like, we really don't want to make this transition. Hmm. And, and I was having to buy these computers. They were called Silicon graphics computers and they were $25,000 each. Um, just as workstations for people to even experiment with the, with 3d. And it was, it just didn't feel good to me. So I ended up selling the company at that time for around $10 million. And, um, and the idea was to, to just, um, you know, 
not take that risk of, of a company that's not going to want to make the transition. But what happened was we ended up finding some talent that we already had internally and we added a few more people and it turned out they were amazing at 3D. Um, and so much so that we, we made this game um, which was quite interesting because it changed my whole perception on how you can sell video games. Um, we made this 3D game called MDK and um, it was it was just a very cool game. It was 3D and it was also quite funny. And we, um, we sold it like you normally do. But what happened is we also realized that there's an awful lot of people or companies that, that, that sell equipment that want something else to go in the box. So um, when Apple sold the very first iMac, they want to have some pre-installed software and they actually licensed MDK from us to put it onto the, onto the, the iMacs. Um, <laughs> every single um like all the all the video cards that were coming out all had mdk um the joysticks had mdk in the box um different uh, hardware manufacturers that were making pcs at the time were licensing it and putting it on there and so what what you realize is that that the because each time we're getting 75 cents for every single device or maybe a dollar for every single device that's that's selling so yes we're selling the game cheaper it's actually a, a it's a simplified version of the game but in reality, it's just money from heaven. And, uh, and so um, that was a kind of a fun experience um, with that particular game. But that was our introduction to, to this, um, this 3D space. And so we ended up pushing our chips in and going hardcore on, on 3D. And, um, and so the company ended up growing and growing and growing. And just to give you a fun little end to that story is that the, the directors of The Matrix reached out um, because they wanted to make a Matrix video game and they liked what we had been building. They liked MDK. And so they, um, they ended up, long story short, I didn't do the, the, the game at the same time as the first movie, but I did it for the second. Um, and my team was just all in building um, the, the, this uh, Matrix game, which was actually designed by the directors of the movie. And so it all tied together perfectly with their movie. And, um, and so we got acquired again. Um, so that was a strange situation um, to actually get acquired a second time. That was for almost $50 million um, because they wanted our team. Atari wanted our team because we had the rights to the Matrix. And, um, and so the, the game was finally published under the, the Matrix brand. Got it. I have so many questions. Okay. So back to the first company that you sold for, for around $10 million, did so Nick was a partner in that company. I'm assuming he was the artist. Um, yes, he was one of the people there. There was a, there was um, there was a, a whole sort of collection of different people that that had uh, with different skills. So we had the whole gambit from designers to artists to you know the, all of them. The only thing we didn't have was music. Again, funnily enough, so yeah, we still so, uh, we still outsourced that. So I was, I'm curious because Nick was the one who was the artist. Obviously you were experts in, in sort of animation, which feels like very art driven. So did he come with you to the next company or did he, did he sort of stay in the world of, of art? In his... No, no, he did. He, 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 um, he came with me and, um, and that all worked out um, well. The problem was that when I flew to America, because I'm from the United Kingdom, when I flew to America, I came alone. And so I had to sort of leave him behind because uh, I had had an offer just to do this one, one contract for McDonald's. 
But as soon as I possibly could, I convinced them to hire him and bring him too. And so, yes, he, he ended up getting on a plane and joining and became part of the team. Okay. So the second company that, that you own, The Matrix, the part two rights to do that video, what, what was the name of that company? Um, it was called Shiny Entertainment. Shiny Entertainment. Okay. Got it. And, and was that like, did you set that up? Was there like an investment group that you guys, did you just self-fund it with the proceeds from the first company or how did the, you find the matrix, that? the matrix, no, uh, the shiny entertainment, the, the company behind that product. Oh, oh. So what happened was uh, imagine we're making, um, um, we, we did Aladdin. It was a huge hit and Jeffrey Katzenberg reaches out and says, would you like to do, um, Lion King and Lion King was was a really exciting um, property, but we had to make a decision. What are you going to do? Is this, is this our future to just keep, you know, doing this, this re repetitive thing, or shall we try something new? And I, I was getting um, interesting offers. So I got an offer from Sega to join Sega. Um, and I'd, I would have got to work with some of the best talent at Sega, which was really interesting to me as an engineer. Um, then, uh, but I also got an offer to join um, a company called Playmates Toys. It turns out Playmates Toys had the rights to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toys, and they made over a billion dollars off those toys. And so you can see how that synergy of walking into the room, um, having a history with the, with the turtles, and then they, um, you know, were thinking of of hiring me to help them build their video game sort of strategy. Um, and I said to them, I'm not really interested in that, but I am interested in starting my own studio. Would you be willing to fund it? And so they said, you know, yes, we would. And so they signed a deal for the first three games that we make, they get to publish. And this and, is uh, the origin of Gaikai. Yes. Oh, no, sorry. This is the origin of, uh, of Shiny Entertainment. And okay. then the, the Gaikai situation, just to explain how that came about, was once I'd gone through this Asian ex experience of, of sort of learning about their industry, I realized that the, the problem that they were having was getting people into the games. So they couldn't get people into the games um, easy enough. You had to go through this whole download, install, um, you know, create accounts and all that. So is there some way we could make that easier? And um, at the time I was actually, um, I had joined a friend of mine from Activision who, who had bought the rights to a company called Acclaim. And he had, uh, he was very, he was the one that was really fascinated about the space. And so in working with him, we started to do the research on that. How could you do this? And we, at the time, you kind of chuckle, but there's there this game called Farmville. It was a big hit. Sure. And uh, everyone, all investors were like, the future is Farmville. And so we were having to work out how could we get Flash, which was the, the, the this technology that Farmville used or, and those kind of games. Um, how could we get Flash to really, you know, do extraordinary things? And the answer was, um, from the cloud. And so we started actually developing that software to, to make it so that flash could be, you know, turbocharged. And, um, and that's when I sort of realized I, I actually gave a speech at a, at a conference and it made me sort of really think hard about, I think the actual future is to run the whole game in the cloud and, and to hell with flash. Like we got to get flash out of this and just, just, just run games from the cloud. And, and, and I ended up, um, what happened was I gave the speech. It was a keynote speech at a, at a conference, a DICE conference. And I got contacted by some engineers in the, from the Netherlands who said to me, we've been working on this technology 
uh, would you like to see where we're at? And I looked at where they're at and I'm like, you really can, this is, I, I was talking about this as a theory. This is amazing that you've actually, you know, got this core stuff working. So let's start a company. And they became my co-founders of Gaikai. That, so that's how that got going. Got it. Okay. So many questions. So that's super helpful. I want to go back to Shining Entertainment for a second. So when you say, and again, this this may be my ignorance about the video game industry, but when you say uh, the the investment group sort of financed the first three games, what does that mean? They they wrote you a check to go build the games in return for a, a percentage of the company? Is that sort of practically what happens in that, in that case? Or how does that well, work? this was a stranger deal in that they didn't take any equity. They just wanted the output. So they wanted games to sell. So they were effectively prepaying for those games to this be developed. Great. <laughs> it's, it's the best, it's the best deal you're ever going to get. Um, so they, they literally didn't ask for equity. They said, here's no. a check. How much was the check for? Well, they didn't write it as one check. They just, we agreed how much it was going to cost for the games. And then they, they started to pay monthly um, to cover the cost of the, the you know, running the, the company. Gosh, people are hearing this going, how do I get into the gaming industry? Like, that sounds too good to be true. Uh, it's, 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 it's absurd. I, I, I've had two of my friends come to me recently who just started new game companies. And straight out of the gate, they have $100 million investments. Like, the, oh the, gosh, it's, it's it, I mean, it, it was... I thought it was easy back then. It is ridiculous now. Like it's the amount of money. If you have talented people, of course you have to have people who've made professional games. But if you have talented people, there's money out there. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm given the fact that these engineers and these these programmers are so valuable and so hard to get. How did you structure it with Shiny Entertainment? I mean, did you give the engineers a piece of the equity, or how did you sort of attract them to come with you? Do you know what I'm getting at? It's a great question. At the time, I mean, I, I'll be I'll be really honest. I, I was so naive in business. I, I never took I left high school to start in the industry. So I never went to college. I never took any kind of business studies whatsoever. And so everything I've learned, I've had to learn, you know, in the trenches as you go. And and I never really equity. I know it seems obvious that everyone wants equity, equity, but what everyone wanted was royalties. They wanted royalties. That was how we thought. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit like a musician. You want royalties on the records that you make. You're not necessarily trying to get a piece of Sony, um, unless you're Michael Jackson or something like that. But in mm -hmm. general, you you don't. You just you were, and, and so everyone was very focused on uh, on earning royalties. And of course, we we did have a royalty uh, um, system built into into what we did for the whole team. So the creators of the game, mm -hmm. the engineers and the programmers, part of their compensation would be a royalty for its future. Yeah. And I and would I they get a base salary as well? Oh yeah, they got a base salary too. And um, you know, over my career I've had so many times where I've employed I've employed somebody and all they can think about is their salary. Like I just want the salary and I want more salary. And I'm like, you really need to care about equity. Um, and you know, cause now I can explain to them that everyone that I've met that's successful didn't make it from their salary. You know, the ones that have boats or multiple homes, they did not, uh, they did not do it just from their salary. They did it, um, from equity in a company. And, and so now I, I, I'm much more aggressive about explaining equity, um, to people. So 
this company, Shining Entertainment, you got this financing from this company that paid you in advance for the three games. So that gets you off. You're paying the engineers a salary plus a royalties, kicker yeah. on the royalties. You build that up. Did you raise capital for that business or did you keep 100% of it yourself? No, it was 100%. Um, and then you sold it for $50 million later. No, I sold it for $10 million. That's when the industry went through went three-dimensional. Um, Okay. It, turns, it turns out that, that, that long story short, I, I got half of it back. So, um, and half of the company or half the money? Half the company. So I got half okay. of the equity back on the company um, during that whole process. And that's why I was able to sell it a second time um, to Atari. Got it. And that company, you who owned the, the company that you sold to Atari? Um, it, was, it was a combination of myself and, and the, uh, the company that had acquired us which was called interplay and so interplay had bought us initially um, but we ended up both owning the company together and so then we were able to sell it a second time so you've been through this a few times this building to sell so to speak or building up and selling oh yeah this is um and it it's a, i think it it's not a necessary thing um it's just a fun piece of the, the the way you can build companies there's lots of successful companies that never need to sell they they can <laughs> run forever. Um, but there are, when you're building technology, um, it's quite common that there's someone out there that wants it. And, and, you know, I never got to a point of going public. I'm hoping to do that with my current company. Uh, I think this company has, I'm now in e-commerce, you know, that's, that's a really bizarre thing to explain, but I figured I'd like to try to learn about another industry. And, um, and so my new company, um, PayPal, just invested into it, and and we're literally um, trying to build something very big. We have thirty thousand brands using our technology, and so this is, I think, is really um, for me the big swing, the biggest, certainly the biggest swing I've made. Um, and so I'm kind of excited to see where this journey goes. It'd be fun to have a chat with you in a couple of years to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> see, see if you do it again. Well, yeah. listen, I want to get, I want to get to the new company, but before we do, let's just dig into Guy Kai for a second. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna dumb it down for my own brain to consume. But effectively, you saw that in order for some of these three-dimensional games to perform, the f- Flash needed to be, you needed to create some sort of middleware so that Flash could work in the cloud more effectively. You didn't have to download the game to your device. You could literally stream it. Am I getting that roughly correct? Well, well, the thought was that a lot of the games are quite simple. There's like, a, you know, it's, you're going through a dungeon killing things. And so can that be done in some new way that, that means that you can play it instantly on every device? So wherever you are, at any time, you can just hit a button and start and be in that dungeon and continue playing. I'd have lots of other people doing it too. And it, so- but You were selling the software that enabled that to, to be possible. You were agnostic of any game that was used. No, was no, really actually this was, we were building a game. Um, we had to build a game to prove it worked. And so which game that did was, you build? it was a game called Kogamu, which was uh, just something that we, we're building um, as a sort of a demonstration of the technology, and it was very, very simple because, of course, it's Flash. But, but it was um, it definitely worked. So, does the tech? Is it possible to do that? Of course, it's absolutely possible. Um, but what it does is it means that the graphic fidelity is going to be limited by what Flash can display, 
And so that's why you can see there's this constant inkling towards, well, but how can we get the full three-dimensional graphical experience to just appear on your computer? Okay. And that's the software that Gaikai made? Yes. Got it. Obviously, I'm a very slow learner. It's taking like no. 40 minutes to figure that out. No, it's no problem at okay. all. Okay, that's, that's helpful. How did you finance the growth of Gaikai? Like, did you self-finance the entire thing? Um, did you raise money? Like, what was, what was your journey there? So I did self-finance the start of the company, and that was very basic, just paying for some servers, and et cetera, and, and just trying to get the, the, the company actually running. Um, and my co-founders were in Europe, so we needed to find a way to get them out into the U.S. so they could, we could actually you know, get an office and start a company. The um, co-founders being the guys in the Netherlands? Yes. How many um, of them were there? There's just two. Got it. Okay. Um, and, and how did you guys decide to divvy up the equity? Because they put in a lot of work to begin we, with. We did just they split get more a, of the equity or had No, you can, you can get all crazy about that. We just said a third, a third, a third, and then there's no discussion. That's, okay. how, that's how you end up not having to, um, you know, have any stress. Um, and, yeah, and every, everybody's and meant, equal. Everyone's equal and we'll all lean in and let's get this thing done. And so that's what we did. Do you ever did. worry that you were going to get held hostage because the, the Dutch guys knew one another. They'd been working together for a while. They own two-thirds of the company. Did you ever worry, Ooh, maybe maybe I don't want to be you know, held hostage by these guys that know each other really well. They have beers every night not together. Really, it's, you know, it's not, it's, yes and no, because it's not really the founders that run a company. It's the board. So at the end of the day, the board makes the ultimate big decisions. Um, including the board would have been made up. Who, who was on the board then? Well, they, they were on the board, but I also, um, our first investor, which was quite early, um, was a guy called Mitch Lasky at, um, at Benchmark Capital. So he's, he was, he's a, an investor at Benchmark that really understands the video game industry. He had mm -hmm. built a company called Jamdat that was bought for a lot of money by, uh, by Electronic Arts. And so he's, he knew the industry really well. And so when I came to him, we had a coffee once and I was explaining to him what this was. And he's like, I, I totally agree with this. This is great. I'd like to invest. And I had other investors lined up at the time. Um, but you know, his offer just trumped everybody else. And, um, and, that and how does it work with, with, with a deal like that? So you guys all, you own a third, a third, a third. Do you each have to agree to the dilution to bring Mitch in as an investor? Like, does everybody have to agree? Yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. I mean, basically what you do is you're valuing the company at some number that they're going to invest at. And then you're agreeing how much they're going to get for their money. So, you know, if they're going to give you $5 million, how much of the company are they going to get for that $5 million? And, and do you have to agree in writing or is it just sort of assumed that that $5 million investment from a guy like Mitch is going into the company? It's not going into your pockets and that of the oh, no, no. Dutch guys. Yeah. No. Yeah. So what they do is the way it works is they give you a term sheet and the term sheet is here's here's what we're willing to do, and here are the sort of the guidelines and the rules of of how we're going to go about this process. And there, we call them exploding term sheets because usually there's some kind of timeout, like you've got two days to sign this thing. Um, and why is that? Well, they don't want you to go out and shop it around 500 other investors. They they're 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 basically. Um, at major risk when that term sheet is issued. So they need to get it done as quickly as possible. And that's quite common is there's some kind of really, really fast time on it. Um, and ultimately then it's up to you uh, as a company to say, 
we're going to do this. And you're right, that, that does require all of the founders to say, let's do this. And, and there's, there, there was no question, Mitch is a rock star. And so you get a rock star investor from an amazing company. It's not even like that. That's a decision that takes about a second. And, um, and suddenly, you know, you have proper funding and now you're able to start recruitment and, and getting offices set up correctly and everything. So that's, so that's you how you get big, going. Okay, you got this big injection of capital. Then, then what was the next round of financing and when did that happen? Um, it's a great question now. It's a little, I, I'm forgetting the timing of all of it, but, but it was, it wasn't, it, it didn't take that long before we started to talk to um, other investors. There were um, strategics that wanted to get involved, um, um, like Intel Capital. Um, that's something that's kind of surprising is there's a lot of these large companies have venture wings that if you're doing something that's in their, in their space, they yeah. will invest. And so just a, a funny story on that. Imagine I'm pitching Intel Capital and the guy um, who was our, his name was Pat Walsh. He was, he was totally got what we we're doing and thought it was awesome and wanted to invest. But at the end of the day, the heads of Intel Capital have to see the final thing and, and give the final okay. And so I just thought it was funny because I pitched them and I showed them World of Warcraft and Call of Duty running from the cloud. And you can imagine there's this executive at, at Intel Capital looking at it and just going, I don't, he, he didn't care about video games at all. Um, and it just wasn't <laughs> interesting. Um, and then I showed them PowerPoint streaming from the cloud. And at the time, um, you know, Google had made Google Sheets and things like that, but there was nothing good. There was no, there was no way to get actual PowerPoint running in a browser anywhere you go. And it blew him out of, it just blew his mind. It was like, this is going to be huge. <laughs> like, <laughs> and like the relative complexity yeah. to those two softwares would have yeah. been like a thousand like to one. Night right? and day, it was night and day. Getting Call of Duty to run in a browser is way harder than getting <laughs> ah. PowerPoint. But it, it, it made him just go, wow, this is incredible. Um, and so, cause he, he was sort of projecting, well, that means any software, this is going to sure. this is going to be available so that's why he got very excited but you can see those kind of investors qualcomm invested um and um, that was another interesting one so we had we had you know high quality people coming in and joining um and um and then for our third round we had nea invested um and nea is again a very highly respected um vc firm um Probably the hardest problem I had in that entire process was actually when I was pitching, I would explain that we're going to need to buy, you know, thousands and thousands of servers because you have to be able to handle all these people playing games. And th this question would come up, how are you going to pay for all those servers? And to be honest, that was a very challenging question because it, 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 it could be a million servers, right? It, it, it could be an enormous amount. And that is one of those situations where it was make or break for us. We had to answer that question. And, and there was a company we came across called Triple Point Capital. And Triple Point, um, um, I believe, funded uh, servers for like, like uh, Netflix and, and Facebook. And they're the kind of company that will actually, um, based upon the success of your company, will give you as much money as you need um, to, to, to keep growing. And so um, having Triple Point behind us just removed that question. Like we have this hmm. company that you know, as long as the metrics work out, they will keep giving you more and more money to, to, to scale. And so it was, uh, it, it, sometimes it's this unique structure that you have to build 
that that helps people get over the the their the sort of preconditioned reasons they would say no, um, and and then they relax and go, okay, this I I totally get it. Um, another example is is when Samsung did their deal with us. They said they would pay for their own network, and and that so you know suddenly you go wait well. Now, I mean, why couldn't we do that? That obviously, if they're willing to pay for the network, this can get as big as Samsung wants it to go. Got so. it. What was the need for the additional rounds of financing? Like, what was causing you to need to raise capital? I'm assuming at some point the business started to generate revenue from these licensing deals you were doing with the likes of Samsung. But assuming the licensing revenue was not enough to cover the nut of all the engineers and stuff that you needed. Yeah, it was. Um, it's. This is actually. I'm going to take a step back. This is a, a an entrepreneur thing. So, whenever I call it down the track thinking, which is if you think of any uh, like a train on a track, the industry's on the train. Everyone sitting on that train is very happy. I'm in the industry. I'm doing. You know, I'm part of the industry. This is great. There's people who miss the train and are chasing after it, and they wish they were part of the industry, and they're doing everything to to catch that damn train. Um, and then there's some people that are trying to sort of predict what's next, and and they're trying to think maybe a station ahead or two stations ahead, like what's next. The question really is to sort of keep saying to yourself, well, if we get to station one, then what? Then what? Then what? Until you just can't project anymore. And so the way we do that is we always think about what would make it better or easier. And so, at some point, you end up with every game everywhere instantly. That's, and then you go, well, how would I beat that? And and you kind of get stuck. You're like, uh, I can't quite beat that. That's that's it. So then you start building towards that. And if you build towards that future, you'll be seen as if you're you're at the 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 tip of the spear um, for any given industry. And um, and to some extent, our job was more to prove that we could do it more than to actually turn it into a commercial business. And so. Um, by by making it so that um, the only way you could play a game was Walmart.com, we weren't charging Walmart for that. We wanted to, that was a strategic um, thing for us to achieve because the minute we signed Walmart, Best Buy um, signed their deal. Um, and then you go, well, now we've got Walmart and Best Buy. Do you think we can get Target or anybody else? And investors will say, yes, we believe you. Um, and then... Uh, we had spent forever trying to get Google to change Chrome to support our technology. Can you imagine calling Google and saying, will you please change Chrome to support something we're building? I can't. It was, <laughs> it, it was hell. I can't tell you how many different engineering calls where the engineers were like, just not interested in changing it. And I was doing everything I could to try to get there. In the end, the, the CEO uh, of Google at the time wanted to do a demonstration of streaming in the browser and suddenly everything became possible. Like everyone was like, okay, what do we need to do to support you? Um, and we did an, a demonstration of how games can stream to Chrome with no delay whatsoever. So it was, it was the same experience as having a console in your house. It was the exact same experience. And that you can see how in every way, I just call it climbing through the barbed wire or, or it's a culture I, I explain when I hire people in the company, including my new company. Um, when we're hiring somebody, we say to them, we're allergic to hurdle pointers. We're allergic to those people that tell you why you shouldn't do something or how hard it's going to be to achieve something. 
um, oh, look at all those hurdles. And, they, and you've been in those meetings. I know you've been in those sure. meetings. There's, there's someone in there that just can't stop pointing at all the problems. And there's other people who jump hurdles, but you never even heard about the hurdles, right? They just, you find out later that there were some, some things they had to deal with, but they just got through it. Those people are worth their weight in gold. Those, um, I bet. It just occurred to me, I go back to the boardroom meeting with the CEO of Google and, and they're like looking at this saying, wow, these games are streaming without interruption through the cloud. All of a sudden, that's a threat to the console makers. Like, well, it is. Um, have you, you know the company NVIDIA? Have you come across NVIDIA? I've heard the name. I have no idea what they do. Okay. NVIDIA is a company that makes the, the, the graphics cards that, um, that, that are in all of the all of the consoles and all the gaming PCs. Okay. Um, that, and AMD and NVIDIA are the two key players. So they're duking it out constantly. But mm. I was invited to speak at a keynote that um, Jensen, the CEO of NVIDIA was giving. So I went on stage with him and he wanted to show this cloud gaming idea, but he had such a cool idea, which was NVIDIA's color is green. So you'll see if you go to their website that, that green is their color. So he had this green ethernet cable um, to a screen and we demonstrated games playing. And he just said, that cable is the console. Um, that's, and that's the future. The cable is the mm -hmm. console. Um, there's no need for a console. It's unnecessary. But that's a pretty big threat to the owners of PlayStation or yeah. Xbox yeah. or that, that's why Sony acquired us because they, they, they wanted to learn and understand and, and be the leaders in the space. And that's what they ended up becoming. Yeah. Well, let's, so let's get it. So, so you're raising, so you get Mitch on, you raised a couple more rounds, institutional, the venture wings of Qualcomm and, and Intel. And so you're raising a, a, a ton, a ton of money. Um, how much in, in, in the end did you ultimately raise through the three rounds? We got about 50 million. Wow. So you've got a, a big war chest. Yeah. Did you shop the company to Sony? Did they come to you? Like how did how did that all come about? Well, actually, we, we realized something that was becoming a problem um, was we sort of realized that having all of these different games running, they were all built at different times by different people and those teams don't exist anymore. So a team made a really great game, but then they disbanded and built their own companies or whatever. So we're going to have to run that game and make it work forever um, in the cloud. And some of the games have built in security systems and things like that. They were never intending intended to be run in the cloud. Sure. And so we're having to do all kinds of complex things just to make games work. We were dealing with all kinds of legacy issues. Sometimes you had to do logins or type in codes or choose options. And we were actually having virtual mice in the cloud clicking things, trying to deal with some of the stupid uh, things that these old games would do. And, um, and we realized this is not fun. This is not, this is not fun. Who has a library of games where this isn't like that? And the answer was Sony and, um, Microsoft and Nintendo. Nintendo, you know, God bless them, love Nintendo, but they just weren't interested. Cloud gaming to them was not interesting at all. They just didn't care. Um, <laughs> and and Microsoft was was interested, but they were actually building their own technology. So they were trying to do it. And um, and so Sony 
um, was, was by far the best choice for us. They were also trying to build this technology, um, but they really liked what we were doing. And I, I thought it was kind of funny because my co-founder um, was a guy called Rui and he loved um, Japanese culture. So he was the one that came up with this name Gaikai for the company. Um, I had taken a marketing class. Um, I was invited to this really weird offsite marketing thing in Texas where people brand or companies pay like 10 grand just to sit at a table and get, you know, with glasses of wine and hear how to market. And I'm, I, I got invited for free. So I'm like, oh, sure, I'm in. I want to hear this. So I sat there and they explained things like um, something they called mystique marketing, which was the idea that certain people can pronounce things correctly and other people won't pronounce it correctly and it actually creates a culture of the people who know how to pronounce it correctly feel <laughs> closer to the brand so every time someone says versace instead of versace um, they they feel closer to versace because they're somehow in the club sure. it's the weirdest uh it's like just, it's tribal right it's tribal it's language marketing psychology so i so my my co-founder says let's call the company guy kind like that's a terrible name and then I'm like, maybe that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> like, let's try it, right? And we did, but it turned out that every single thing that we did, all the servers and technology, we gave Japanese names to, um, uh, you know, so that, that, you know, it was just kind of a fun thing that, so uh, all of our different technologies had Japanese names. So how weird is it that then a Japanese company comes along and acquires you? And I can't tell you how happy they were when we were explaining all of these things and, and telling them the names and the names actually meant that they had reasons to exist. Um, uh, it made them so happy that part of our culture was being very respectful to their culture. And so, you know, I, it, it's, a, it's, it's just interesting how that works out. So I, 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 uh, I enjoyed that whole process with Sony. I love that. So Gaikai is Japanese for big ocean or wide ocean or what, what, what is the actual? Well, it was hard to even explain that. Cause if, if you ask different people, you'll get different answers. The way we explained it is imagine you're in the, out in the middle of the ocean and, and there's a, a million different ways you could go. Like you could go off at a million different okay. angles. That's basically what the, the technology was going to, it was going to fundamentally change so many different industries, um, by, by the way it works that, that we thought it was, you know, that was how we would explain it to people is that it was this open ocean strategy. Um, and, and that's what the technology was going to solve for. Got it. And, and the servers were named by, uh, named after, or inspired by Japanese names. At what point did you realize Sony would be the natural acquirer for your company? Was this years later or was this part of your thinking that you, naming it with a Japanese name would, would start yeah. to appeal to Sony as a potential acquirer? Whenever I start a company, I tend to draw on a wall somewhere uh, like the equivalent of a dartboard or a target. And then I write the names of companies that I think would be interested in what we're building. Um, <laughs> mostly just to try to frame in my head, does anyone care? I have this uh, other thing I do sometimes is I, um, I call it the restaurant test. If you have an idea, imagine you're sitting in a restaurant full of people. How many of these people are going to do that thing you know, today? So if I said, you know, VR. How many of the people in this restaurant, let's say there's 100 people here, are actually going to go home and put on their headsets tonight and play with VR? And it helps you apply this at a very, very rapid filter to any idea. Like, is there, how big is this idea? I mean, how many of those people are going to use Amazon or use Netflix? Or um, Google Chrome or... Or Google Chrome, right? Yeah, it's a great or, question. Yeah. 
and then you, and, and then you're allowed to 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 change the metrics from a restaurant of ten, of 100 people to 100,000 people so okay mm -hmm. let's let's go for the 100,000 and 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 you can see even at 100,000 there's a lot of ideas will have very very limited amounts of people and those are the ones you got to start to to go is this is this the best idea right now mm -hmm. um but it's it's just a, an interesting little filter that you can use um um you know when you're thinking of things so the dark board for gaikai included sony oh yes no doubt sony nintendo microsoft google facebook um all of the apple all of them were on there i mean i i was up at apple i spent so much time with apple trying to to get into there i wanted them to unlock the the hardware for us um and that turned out to be you know i'll tell you a funny story is i somebody told me if you write an email to steve jobs he will reply to you and and i'm like no that's just crazy so i wrote an email to steve jobs and i said i just very basically explained what we're doing and and i got an email back the next morning what can we do to help you and and um and, you know for, and it said sent from my iphone which i thought was funny um and and i i replied to him i'd really like to speak to whoever is in charge of gaming at apple and that day i get a phone call from the head of gaming at apple saying you know steve just asked me to give you a call and that that was remarkable um you know that that is not something that happens commonly um uh you know most most ceos don't reply um they're they're inaccessible but apple was very accessible and so i did spend quite a bit of time trying to get into the actual hardware of of the iphone so that we could because if we could, the performance that we could deliver would be remarkable. People would have mm. been like, this is impossible. How are you doing this? And that's what I was trying to get to. But I'm assuming you didn't get there. Well, they so kept, they kept, it was meeting after meeting after meeting after yeah. meeting. And, and it was, uh, and by that point, Sony had acquired us, but we were having those conversations. So back to my question, did you shop the company to Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo in a sort of a, an auction style where M&A bankers kind of took you around to these different companies and said, would you like to buy us? Was that the process you, you went through to sell or? Yeah, there's actually a company called Catalyst and starting with a Q and Catalyst, um, um, Benchmark brought them in and they were just remarkable. Um, you see, this is what I'm talking about. This is all the learning, um, it's learning by experience. There, there's no, I, how would I know that, that Catalyst was the right company to call? Um, that's where, you see, some people look at VCs and they're like, oh, that's such expensive money, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, they come up with some reason why you shouldn't work with VCs. I'm the exact opposite. These people are awesome. And, um, and the, the connections they bring and the respect, the respect they bring, you're obviously building something real when you have real investors behind you. Um, that, that it's, it's incredibly valuable. And so Catalyst would normally not do a deal as small as ours. They tend to do, you know, billion dollar deals plus. So, um, you know, as a relationship thing, they jumped in, which meant I got to witness how those kind of people um, operate and, and they did increase the value of the deal. So they more than paid for themselves in the process. So what did they do? Um, they, they kind of come in and, um, you know, they, they actually said something to me. I can say this now because, you know, this is all history. But they said to me, David, our job is to is to keep you out of all of this. You have one role 
and that is to keep Sony happy. I want your relationship with Sony to be spectacular. It's a love fest. You know, they love what you're doing. You love what they're doing. You have a great relationship. We never want you to talk about terms or issues or problems or negotiating or any of that with uh, with Sony. And and um and it was kind of funny because that turned out to be incredible advice. So my our relationship stayed fantastic the whole way through. We didn't end up sort of quibbling over things. And at the very end of the deal, Sony came back to me and said, "David, there's one problem: is you have some patents that are, you know, personally you have patents that may interfere with this company in the future, and that's that's got us a little spooked. Like, you know, we're going to buy your company, and you have some patents, and we don't know if this." I said, "You can have the patents," and uh, and they're like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> you're like, wait, what? You're just going to give us the patents? And I go, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and they're like, okay, because you can see that was something I learned from my attorney. My attorney said to me, the job is to win the war, not to win every battle. And that's a perfect demonstration of that. I could have fought and fought and fought over patents. Would have that made any sense at all? No, I'm I'm here to win the war and get this deal done. And, um, and and there were plenty of other people out there. I had competitors that would have loved to have the, had the, the deal that we got. Um, There's about 30 competitors, and we're the only one acquired. And our biggest competitor ended up folding afterwards, uh, like about a month wow. later. When so, you say competitor, like, could you, are you able to share ballpark kind of how much revenue you're making as a company? I know it wasn't valued on a on a multiple of revenue or EBITDA or anything like that. No, no, not at all. So the, the revenue was actually... Um, almost insignificant at this point because what we were doing was so bleeding edge. And um, and so it's an interesting question. This was advice given to me by Intel Capital. They said to, to me, don't make any money. Um, if you make money, we can judge your value. So the day you start trying to make money, we're going to instantly know your value. If you don't make money, we don't know your value. And we, we're going to judge based upon interest in the market and, and what else is going on. and. Um, you know, and so your job is to really show momentum, excitement, um, support, um, partners, um, growth. Um, so we came up with an idea, which I think was was part of what um, would have added a lot of value um, outside of Sony, was we added a, a little feature um, to any anyone's website relating to gaming. So it could be a, a gaming website or a blog or anything. They could add one line of code and it would then what, what, what we would do is we'd say, look, we have a server free. Would you like to play FIFA soccer and try it out for free right now? And it would actually pop up and, and give you a moment to click on it. And you could say, sure, I'll play it. And then FIFA soccer would appear. That seemed like um, a very simple idea. Um, and, and then we said to the brands, look, here's the deal. If, if, um, if we charge for this, for the brands, anything we make will split 50-50. Can you imagine how how they're like? Wait, what? That's a great deal. We're we're in. So you know it, we're, we're partners here. But what we actually were doing was we're we're starting to to their traffic just became our traffic, right? So how many eyeballs do we have? Became so every website we were adding was giving effectively letting us um, build this in, in, in this arsenal of of how much reach that we had to gamers. Um, and you know, I think we got to 50 million really quickly. Um, and, and so at that point you could, you could start to see there was a lot of value there too. And this is really my point is you have this sort of multi multiple sort of strategy of how you're going to 
sort of, I was getting invited to do keynote speech after keynote speech at the time because we were touching on so many interesting places. Um, and so that, that's why um, I think that the cloud gaming thing was, was, was starting to really cause some ripples in the, in the game industry while we were doing this and why other companies out there were starting to think, well, how could we use that technology? So I had meetings with all the Comcast and everyone. They're all thinking, like, what's the future of our set-top boxes? Like, where do these things go in the future? How is this all going to work? And you can imagine um, when investors and your board are watching all this activity, they're very, very supportive. So no one was saying to me, you need to start charging $9.95 a month or something. No one was saying that to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it all is possible by your savvy raising money. So to your own point, you raised $50 million, which allowed you the luxury, frankly, of not making money and profits and stuff like that. You could continue to raise money because there was a huge story being, being strung together. You shared something before we hit record, and I wanted to circle back to it. It, it was uh, this notion of a gold seam. Can you describe yeah. what you mean by, by helping investors see the seam? Yeah, one of the conferences I was on a panel with investors and I said to the audience, I think I know what these investors want. And the investors were all like looking at me going, okay, you know, smarty pants, what is it that we want? And I said that it's the entrepreneur's job to go prospecting and find the gold seam in whatever industry you're in, there's some gold in there somewhere and it's your job to find it um it is not their job to find it they have no interest in looking for it it's your job to find it but once you find the gold seam it's their job to bring in the heavy machinery to get that gold out of the ground as fast as possible so that no one else even knew it happened right they were they're all too late and, and literally all of the vcs were just nodding to me going that's exactly what we do like they're 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 they don't their job isn't really education their job is really about um, scale, uh, scaling you up and giving you the weapons and the armor and everything you need to, to, to execute and, and, um, and to do it efficiently and well. And so, but you have to bring them something and you have to be able to clearly present to them what, what, what you've discovered or what you've found. There's an awful lot of entrepreneurs that are like, well, I can't do anything until someone gives me the money. That's not so great. That's not, that's a very, you've created a, a much more difficult money raising situation. Another thing is that people sometimes seem to think that VC's job is to actually distribute money. Like they're, they've got some bank account somewhere with a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars in it. And it's their job just to hand out that money to random entrepreneurs and see what happens. It's the exact opposite. Their job is to protect that money. Like it's the most precious thing in their world because their career is over if they don't. And so what they do is they, 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 they have to do due diligence and they, they'll check your backgrounds and, and the, everyone working with you and what's going on and with your customers. And they're doing all of that because they're protecting the money. And so once you understand that's really who they are, they're, they're people protecting money, then it sort of changes your frame and how you should approach them and what you need to present to them to get them to be interested in whatever you're doing. You know, David, it strikes me as, as you are an interesting cat. I mean, like you kind of flippantly say, oh, I sold that one for 10 million and this one for 50 million and this one was 380 million. And I'm listening to you and you're describing these incredible, you know, uh, 
venture capitalists that you fly in these circles with and these investors and these huge companies. And, and yet here you are, somebody didn't go to university. Uh, I have a funny story there too. So help me, but before we go to your story, I, I want to help me square that. Like, how does somebody who is a computer guy, university dropout or didn't go to university, learn what you've learned about business? Like, what's your source of information? Like, how have you become what you've become? It's, it's a couple of things. One is that there's a sort of a, I, I find myself sometimes doing things without thinking about it, mean, meaning that you're just doing it because it's the next step and the next thing to do. And you're in a way you're climbing the mountain um, because you're staring at the top of the mountain and you're just climbing. Um, what, what kills a lot of businesses when they get stuck in the fog and they don't know where they're going, they don't know what the next step is. In this situation, I'm just trying to get to the top of this mountain. And, and what you'll find is when people see that and they, they see momentum and they see, um, I, I have a huge respect for talent. What's made it possible for me throughout my career is finding great people. And, um, and so that's the answer to that question is whenever you are, um, there's the people who you work with to help sort of build companies, but there's also the people who support you, your attorneys, your accountants, all these other people, those people, um, you start to really trust and believe in, meaning that if I'm doing a deal and it's going to be in China, it's going to be complicated. I don't, I know that I have people to reach out to that will kill it. Right. They, they, David, they, okay. But let me push back because I know a lot of people who, who do not have the self-confidence. Yeah. To That's be true. vulnerable in that way, right? And and put their lot in someone else's hands. You had the humility uh, to do that and to 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 but, but a lot of people are not confident in, they, they're self-confident, right? They feel like they need to know all the answers and they can't give up that control. And they you got that from someone or something. Where did you get that from? Um it's a great question. I'm not sure where that came from, but this idea that I believe I could start a business in just about any industry, um, meaning that I think you can learn um, and surround yourself with talent and, and take on just about anything. Um, and I, I'm proving that with my new company and I, I'm, I'm literally trying to, to challenge myself. Um, just to touch on that really quick, this idea yeah. that I like to talk about is the idea that that you as a human being, um, it's very easy to get stuck in certain ruts. Like I, I do this, like I'm an engineer, so therefore I, I don't do anything else. I'm an engineer, like don't like artists. I don't know what you do. You do art or something. I'm the exact opposite. I want to know everything about how the artists are, or how graphic designers work, um, which software they're using. Can I have a go with that software? Um, I want to understand it completely. The love you get back from them when you actually start to talk their lingo because you actually understand what they do is a game changer. Um, and, you know, musicians, uh, um, same thing. When you actually take the time to care about how their music sounds, they're like, wait, you actually care um, what our music sounds like? Yeah, I really do. We're going to try to make this sound awesome. And then they want to they work with you. Um, and so it's a case of trying to um, understand as much as you possibly can about as many different things. And I've now taken that to the extreme. So what I do 
is if there's something, an opportunity to learn something, I go all in. I mean, I, I built my own maker space and I have, you know, woodworking, the most advanced woodworking stuff, metalworking, welding. I set up a photo studio. I took classes with the best photographers that teach. Um, if I have to fly somewhere, I will fly. I flew to, I think it was, uh, it was uh, like Ohio. I flew out just to, to spend time with a master woodworker so he could teach me how to build rocking chairs. Why? Because that's one of the hardest things to build is, is this, uh, there's a certain thing called the Maloof rocking chair. And he, he literally teaches you how to build it. And, and you're there for just a few days, but the, the information that you, you receive, and then you go back to your normal life is incredible. But it means that whenever you're in business, you're going to meet people. Um, I, I, I was talking to you just before the call about, like, for example, say this person's into water skiing. Do you have any stories? Like, can you talk about water skiing? I've done that. I've been on a flight with a guy reading his water skiing magazine. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, you know, um, you, start, you start the conversation. You know he's into water skiing. There's instant rapport. Um, I think one of the funniest examples, I, and, and I have water skied. I water skied and got a whole set of stories of, of things about water skiing. Um, but the, one of the funniest ones, so I was on a flight once, and this, by the way, is my challenge to everyone that's listening, is when you're anywhere where you're sitting by a stranger, your job is to, is to create rapport with that individual. That's your practice. You should do that everywhere you go. So this individual, I have no idea who it is, so let's just talk to him. Turns out the guy was into iron ore. He ships massive amounts of iron ore, and, and he's super wealthy. And, and I was thinking to myself, well, this guy's got me. I've got nothing on iron ore. I have no knowledge. I know nothing about his industry. I know nothing about this. And I noticed he was playing this video game, um, uh, which is a tennis game, and I sit on, a little, uh, on a little handheld. And I said to him, you know, I know the people who made that tennis game. And he goes, oh, I actually invested in this company. <laughs> right? And, then, and suddenly... Suddenly we have rapport because now there's something there's a, a common connection and we can explore that and, and we're having the chat. He said to me, look, we're flying into New York. Um, I'm gonna see you two tonight. I've bought a whole row of seats. Would you like to uh would you like to come and see you two at Madison Square Garden? And I'm sitting in Madison Square Garden listening to you two who I really like. Um, with some guy because I took the moment just to ask him about you know, what it is he does. And, and, and I just, that has been my entire life. I have had countless situations that have happened because of those interactions. Another one I like to, to, to give, and it's not name dropping at all. It's just part of, of being um, in, the, in the industry and being accessible was um, we did, uh, when we did the Matrix game, I got a call from uh, a friend of Michael Jackson saying, would you be willing to let Michael play the Matrix before it launches? And next minute I'm at Neverland um, with Michael Jackson. Uh, and, and, you know, he ended up saying, can we make a game together? And of course we started working on that game. And, and that's the kind of stuff that um, it's that, it's, it's having all the doors open and being willing to walk in uh, um, through any of the opportunities as they surface in real time. But you have to have to make those connections. Um, if you just, you could just sit on your airplane and put your headphones in and just, wait until the flight's over. And the amount of people doing that's remarkable. Um, but those are all perfect training opportunities, I think, for entrepreneurs. And where did you learn that? Like, I want to know what David was like when you were 12. Tell me about your parents. Uh, my parents, uh, my mother worked for British Airways, which was wonderful because 
we were in Northern Ireland where there was a lot of terrorism and British Airways was actually seen as a bad thing because the, the terrorists didn't want Britain. So therefore sure. having a British airline was the last thing they wanted. Mm -hmm. So they were given extra benefits, which included, we can go anywhere in the world anytime we want for free. And, um, and that was marvelous. So we, you know, as a kid, that's what helped me understand there's a bigger world out there when you start to travel. And, um, I think, um, my parents were very cool. They would hand me the tickets and say, you, you know, you take us through the airport, you tell us what do we do? What do we do next? <laughs> and, and that was very, very helpful. Um, because it makes you start to become a little braver. Um, you're not just, just following behind, you know, whatever they say, that's what's the way it's going to be. Um, but no, my parents were great. My father was a photographer. And, um, and so, uh, he, he finally uh, passed away from cancer. But just before that, I said to him, I'm going to buy a camera. And, you know, I, I was trying to cheer him up. I, I was like, I, I'm really interested in photography and I genuinely was, but I just didn't have a camera. And so I said, what should I buy? What's, what's the absolute best camera I could buy? And he said, when they went to the moon, they took a Hasselblad with them. And so I went out and I bought a Hasselblad camera. And that, that um, sort of changed my whole perspective of photography. And so I ended up getting into photography um, and I, I have my own studio. I took all these lessons, but, but then I realized that when I take pictures, nobody cares about them. So I found that if I take pictures of social media influencers, suddenly people care about them. You get all this, all this action that happens because everyone wants to meet this person. They want to marry this person. Um, and so, um, and it sort of changed my whole view of, of influencers because they would tend to gather in groups. So in my studio, I would have, um, 15 million followers worth of people waiting to get their picture taken. And I'm like 15 million people. How many people is that? And, and then you go, I went to an Ed Sheeran concert and there's about 60,000 people there at the Rose Bowl. And you're looking around the Rose Bowl going, there's so many people here. And then you go, that's only 60,000. They have 15 million every day, multiple times a day. Um, and you start to, so that's what suddenly I became very interested in learning. I have to learn more about this influencer thing. This is fascinating. Um, the amount of, of power these people have is, is incredible. And so that's where my brain is constantly going is, is, you know, these interesting threads and how it all ties together. It's not something that anyone told me to do. Or it's not something my parents did. It's, it's something I've just sort of evolved over time, but it's a really fun journey when you do that. Like someone said to me, um, would you like to go skydiving? And I was like, oh God, no, I do not want to do that. But actually under this criteria, I have to do it, right? I have to have a skydiving story and boy, do I have a skydiving story, right? And, and that's, that's the whole, that's the thing. Now, do I have to do it again? Do I have to make skydiving like a piece of my life that I do? Hell no, you know, but, but at least understand it. And then and I, I, it's just so many fun things that you can experience that way when you, when you, when you start opening to it. Um, but then when you see that later in life, helping with rapport with uh, investors or whoever, I just, I, I've just been asked to speak at a conference next week. And I just found out that the, the guy that invited me is from Belfast. I mean, what? He's lost his accent too. Um, and instantly there's the rapport again. Um, so that, that's the way life really is. An investor are just, investors are just normal people with normal hobbies and they like to travel to certain places and you've probably been there or you could go there. Um, th those are all, um, those are all interconnections 
that, that you start to build over time. Well, I love the idea of curiosity. And I think, you know, I, I'm often talking to my kids about the, you know, the entrepreneurial superpowers. But I think curiosity, as you've demonstrated, even as simple as finding out what the person next to you in an airplane does or is passionate about is, is an expression of curiosity. And I think it's, it certainly has been your superpower or one of the many superpowers that you have. So I think you're to be commended on that. It's not always easy to be curious, right? Sometimes it feels safer to sort of stay in, in the zone in which you feel you have domain expertise. I know for me personally, I, I, I have to push myself to try new things, but when I do, I'm I'm generally always happy that I have. So yeah, I, I appreciate I'm actually, you sharing that. I'm super shy in general and you can't tell it, but, but I, I'm You'd super never shy, know. <laughs> super, super shy. And I, when I would give speeches, I'd be so stressed out about it. And, and, and that became to me a reason to give more speeches. I could feel the stress in my body when I'd step on a stage and, and I would get invited to bigger and bigger things. And you end up in front of thousands of people. I, 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 I once even got it was sort of a, a personal challenge was I wanted to get invited to speak at the real TED conference, not TEDx, but the real TED conference. And I went and I, I was in a, I went to TED and the guy who curates the whole thing was at the lunch line and I walked up to him at the lunch line. And I said, you know, you know, TED means technology entertainment design. And the one thing you don't seem to cover is video games. And he goes, oh, that's a good point. You know, we do need to do a video game talk again. You know, we, we have in the past, but we haven't in a long time. Um, would you like to give a talk on video games? And so I did. And, and that's, the, the stress level, I was actually really sick when I gave my TED talk. I had the flu and I still did it. I was actually like physically sick right after my talk because I was so oh, ill on no. stage. But I was there was nothing on earth was not going was going to make me say no to, to walking on that stage. Now I want to um, go watch the, the, the Yeah. When you watch that, I, I literally vomited after the thing, oh, not from no. not from nervousness. I was so ill, um, oh. but but it was. Uh, it, it's this is what life is about, right? And, and it, you know, even though you're stressed out, it means that, that every time you give a speech, you become less stressed um, about it. If you have kids, if you have young kids, I cannot, I, I have to say to you, must put them into theater uh, because in a way it will give them that skill whether they like it or not. It's hmm. they're, go they're going to be unlocked um, and, you know, put them into theater because they're going to be made to go and stand on stage and deliver lines and, and stand up in front of other people. And it, it, it's, it happened to my daughter. She went to theater um, when she was young and she's so, so ready for business as far as I'm concerned, um, because she's got no fear at all of, of standing awesome. up in front of people. That's awesome. Good for her. So tell us quickly about the new company and where people can learn about more about that. Well, what we're doing is the, the concept was, um, is there a way we could get brands and influencers to work together in a new way? And what we actually do is we try to help brands work out which influencers like their brand, and then we introduce the two. And that's a shocking change. That was inspired by my photo sessions, because I would ask the influencers, you know, how's it going? Being, what's it like to be an influencer? And they'd say, it's not so great, because we're constantly getting asked by brands that we don't use their products to promote their products. So tell everyone my candles are awesome. I don't use candles. Um, right. And so that's not a great relationship. So could we do it the other way, which is we'd work out, you know, which, uh, which uh, w this influencer, which brands do they currently follow and 
post about and buy their products? And, you know, can we get those two to work together? And the, the, the influencer's response is, oh my God, I love this brand. I've been buying their products for years. And so we've done that now 7 million times. And, um, and, and ultimately then we realized when COVID hit that this is great because we're getting attention for brands, but what we really need is more sales. And so we came up with a technology that allows brands to collaborate and cross-sell each other's products. And what that means is you're a bicycle company, but for some crazy reason, you don't sell helmets. So everyone that wants a helmet with their bike is going to end up going to another tab on their browser and going and buying the helmet somewhere else. Do you really not want to sell helmets? Because we have killer brands here in our network. Again, we have 30,000 brands. Why don't, you, why don't you partner with one of those brands and we'll take their helmets and put them right into your store. So now you, their inventory is your inventory. You don't have to buy anything. There's no, it's not going to cost you a dollar to, 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 to transfer that over. Um, and then it's up to you to sell those products. And whenever you sell, they will do the shipping, which, which improves the efficiency of, of online sales. Because today, um, if you're moving products around from one warehouse to another, it, it's, it's losing margin and they live and die by margin. So, um, and of course, if they sell a helmet and gloves and, and a lock with each bike, they're going to end up increasing their average order value, which sure. makes which sort of builds their business. So we built that technology and that's live now and, um, and, and brands are using that, but we're, we have obviously more ideas. We're, we're trying to sort of think of an organism of brands all helping each other um, and how big could that become if all the brands collaborate with each other and sort of cross sell each other's products and give each other advice and how to reduce shipping costs and all the rest. If we can create that ecosystem, I think it's going to be incredibly valuable. And so what's the name of the company? It's called Caro, C-A-R-R-O. The website is getcaro.com. We're currently on Shopify. And um, if anyone, just just in case any of your entrepreneurs are on Shopify, if they would like to use this product, um, just go to, if they email hello at getcaro.com and mention this podcast, we will give them VIP um, support. So they can come in and kick the tires and give it a try. Hello at getcaro.com yeah and caro is c-a-r-r-o that's right okay and we'll put it, that it, it comes from the latin word caris which means cart and cart is the center of the the online shopping universe like the cart yeah. is everything i'm trying to think who's in your bullseye for this one i'm like latin i don't know the yeah, latin no <laughs> yeah we didn't we, we didn't do that naming trick the mystique marketing thing but what we did do is we um i think i think um you know, Shopify, Magento, Salesforce, um, Google, uh, Facebook, all of these companies would find what we're doing fascinating. Alibaba, all so. of them. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very large play, um, because e-commerce is just so big. And so this one, um, yeah, again, PayPal has invested and we have other, um, incredible people. Um, we have brands investing, influencers investing, um, we've raised about 30 million so far for that company and, um, you know, we're taking a big swing. We'll see what happens. You found another thread of gold and you're <laughs> backing up the, the big machinery. It's yeah. Awesome. We're, get, we're getting the, the investors coming in to help for sure. That's awesome. Hello at getcaro.com. David, this was a real treat for me. Thank you for doing this. No, thank you so much for inviting me. It's fun. I always love talking about this stuff. So anytime in the future you want to do it again, just, just give me a call. 
Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.